Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This episode is supported by the FX original series, Reservation Dogs. From Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, this first-of-its-kind indigenous creative team tells a story that invites audiences into a surprisingly familiar and funny world. Reservation Dogs. All episodes now streaming exclusively FX on Hulu. Just a note before we get started. The stories we're sharing this season touch on different kinds of trauma. Please take care of yourself while you listen. I was in the courtroom for a period of about five minutes all alone. And so I sat there quietly before another soul entered the courtroom. And I just bowed my head and uh, offered a prayer for not only the case, but for wisdom and guidance for our entire legal team and those that were in the audience. This is Fawn Sharp. In January of 2020, she was sitting in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, one step below the Supreme Court, waiting for oral arguments to start in the big federal lawsuit we've been following this season, Brackeen v. Holland. Sharp is the vice president of Quinault Indian Nation and the president of the National Congress of American Indians. But before the arguments got started, Sharp got in trouble. So I wear a traditional Quinault cedar hat. Cedar in the Quinault language is Chittim, and it represents strength. It represents a, a sacred bond we have to our, our lands. Uh, shortly before the justices came out, I was asked to remove my cedar hat, and I told the staffer that I can't do that. I simply just said, I can't. And, and then she proceeded to ask me if it was uh, medically necessary to have my hat. And I, I told her, again, looked at her squarely in the eyes, and I said, I cannot remove this hat. And it is medicine. It is cedar. It is a part of who I am. And she, at that point, just said fine and walked away. But that was sort of a, a first impression before the justices even walked out into the courtroom. I was being challenged and asked to strip myself of my Quinault identity. Sharp's tribe, Quinault Indian Nation, is actually part of the case. You'll remember the lawsuit started as the Brackeens in Texas suing the federal government. Soon after, other plaintiffs and states joined. And then tribes intervened. Navajo Nation, because this case involves their children. And also Cherokee Nation, Oneida Nation, the Morongo Band of Mission Indians, and Sharps Tribe. The Indian Child Welfare Act is incredibly important for the health and well-being of Quinault families because it serves as a, a foundational piece to our society to ensure that we'll continue for generations. So five tribes and the U.S. federal government are defending ICWA, and three foster families, one birth mom, and three states are suing to strike it down. Back in district court, that Texas judge declared ICWA unconstitutional. But the tribes and U.S. federal government appealed to the Fifth Circuit, just one step below the Supreme Court. When Fawn Sharp was sitting in that courtroom in January of 2020, 
It wasn't a regular hearing. It was this special thing called an en banc. That's when all the judges on the circuit hear the case. Normally, it's just a few. These types of hearings are very rare. So it was a big deal that it even happened. The courtroom was packed and tense. The people you've heard about so far this season, almost all of them were there. I was there too. The room was split by an aisle down the center. On the left side sat people who support ICWA. Tribes sent delegations, national native leaders flew in, and local tribes came to show their support. On the right side sat the people who want to strike ICWA down. It was a much smaller group. They sat towards the back behind a few rows of law clerks. Before the argument started, they were chatting with each other. I saw Jennifer Brackeen point at me, but we didn't speak. Sitting next to the Brackeens was Mark Fiddler, that adoption attorney who connected them to Gibson Dunn. I tried to get a comment from him as he left the courtroom. Mark, can I get a quick comment? I really don't want us to talk. I'm sorry. Okay. Could you, would you mind telling me why? Um, Matt's handling all of our communications for the team. Matt is Matthew McGill from Gibson Dunn, the plaintiff's other lawyer. When it was McGill's turn to speak, he told the same story he's been telling about how the Indian Child Welfare Act is tearing families apart. Thank you, Chief Judge Owen, and may it please the court, Matthew McGill for the individual plaintiffs. My clients opened their hearts and their homes to a child in need and embrace that child as a part of their family. They are here because the Indian Child Welfare Act's placement preferences turned their lives and their families upside down solely because the child they took in is an Indian child and they are not and cannot be, because of their race, Indian families. During the hearing, people on both sides of the aisle were listening for one thing— whether or not this case would go to the Supreme Court. Tribal leaders don't want this to happen because that's where it could do the most damage. If the Supreme Court declares ICWA unconstitutional, it could impact generations of Native children, the legal status of tribes, and so much more. You're listening to This Land, a podcast about the present-day struggle for Native rights. From Crooked Media, I'm your host, Rebecca Nagel, Goheen Dawadon citizen of Cherokee Nation. This season, we're following how a string of custody battles over Native children became a federal lawsuit that threatens everything from tribal sovereignty to civil rights. When McGill got up to tell that story about how ICWA is tearing families apart, He didn't focus on the little boy the Brackeens adopted, Antonio. He talked about another Native child, a child I haven't told you about yet, Antonio's little sister. Unbelievably, the Brackeens are living this nightmare now for a second time. Her custody case is still pending. And while it's heartbreaking that this toddler is stuck in limbo, that limbo actually helped the Brackeens in federal court that story after the break. Today's episode is brought to you by FX's Reservation Dogs. 
The Hollywood Reporter called the first season of the original comedy a distinctive, wonderfully cast triumph of representation and ranked it the number one best TV show of 2021. This season, Reservation Dogs continues to follow our favorite gang of indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma, with each of them trying to forge their own path in hopes of one day making it to California. FX's Reservation Dogs is now streaming only on Hulu. This land is brought to you by Magic Spoon. We're all trying to eat better, but a healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring. Magic Spoon has the amazing flavors you love, but without all the bad stuff. Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Only 140 calories a serving, too. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Their variety pack comes with four flavors, including cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. It tastes exactly like regular cereal from your childhood, but it's super nutritious. Go to magicspoon.com slash land to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code LAND at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com LAND and use code LAND to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. In the summer of 2018, Antonio's birth mother had another baby. Both the mom and baby tested positive for drugs. At two days old, the child was placed in foster care, but not with the Brackeens. We'll call this baby Yaslin. When Yaslin was about six months old, her great-aunt Alvita found out that she had been born and she wanted to raise the baby. Navajo Nation and Texas social workers agreed she was the best placement. But before Yaslin could go live with family, there was a court hearing where Chad and Jennifer Brackeen intervened. Because Jennifer Brackeen had also found out about Yaslin's birth. Here's what she wrote in her blog, read by an actor. My heart stopped as we processed this news. I cried a lot. I knew what the right thing to do was. I knew what God was asking our family to do, but I didn't want to start over again. Babies are so much work, and we'd been in the weeds with little kids for nine years at this point. We were getting excited about adventures with older kids when we were hit with this news. We started pursuing her within a few months of her birth. As is this case with us, nothing is easy. So after crying at the news of Yaslin's birth, Jennifer decided she had to fight for custody of a child that she had not fostered and over that child's blood relative. At first, Chad and Jennifer Brackeen contacted the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, but social workers wouldn't give them information about the baby. So their lawyer, Matthew McGill, sent a letter to the deputy commissioner of Texas DFPS. But the department wouldn't budge. They wouldn't place Yaslin with the Brackeens. So Jennifer tracked down Yaslin's mother in jail and got her to sign an affidavit that she wanted the Brackeens to adopt Yaslin. 
Yaslin's caseworker would later testify the Brackeens got that affidavit by promising Yaslin's mom an open adoption, meaning she could always have contact with the baby. The caseworker said that was concerning. When we asked the Brackeens about this, they declined to comment. Chad and Jennifer used that affidavit to help get standing in Yaslin's case. In other words, to have a say in what happened. They showed up in family court with a legal arsenal. They had Gibson Dunn, of course, and the Attorney General of Texas. During the trial, the Brackeens said they should be chosen because they had adopted Yaslin's brother, and they wanted the siblings to grow up together. In the 10 months Yaslin spent in Texas foster care, she had been to the Brackeens' home eight times to visit her brother. Here are excerpts from Chad's testimony, read by an actor. Remember, the Brackeens changed Antonio's name. So our child Luke, Yaslin's brother, will ask about his quote-unquote baby sister. That's how he refers to her, my baby sister. Every day for like a week, week and a half after she visits. We explained that this baby that looks like him, that's in this home, is his sister. Chad talked about wanting Antonio to grow up with a relative, with someone who looked like him. A lot of people want that for their children, which is why ICWA was created. Alvita was one of the last people to take the stand. Alvita doesn't have money like the Brackeens do, and she was asked about that about the size of her house, about the fact that her adult children help support her financially. On the stand, most of her answers to these questions were one word, yes or no. Like Jennifer, Alvita found out about Yaslin's birth by word of mouth. Her reaction couldn't have been more different. In court, she said, quote, I love kids. And when I saw her picture, I started loving her. The family court judge ruled that Yaslin would live with the Brackeens. He added that every summer she would visit Alvita on Navajo Nation. That decision was appealed by everyone, Navajo Nation, Texas DFPS, and the Brackeens, who objected to those summer visits. Yaslin's custody case, the question of who will raise her, is still under appeal at the Texas State Supreme Court. She's three years old. And while that uncertainty isn't good for Yaslin, it actually helped the Brackeens in their big federal lawsuit. Here's their lawyer, Matthew McGill, in the Fifth Circuit. He calls Yaslin by her initials, YRJ. Once again, their family is at risk of being torn apart as the Navajo Nation has played the ICWA trump card in an effort to thwart the wishes of YRJ's mother that YRJ be placed with the Brackeens, something that the Navajo Nation can do only because YRJ's mother is Navajo and YRJ has the requisite blood quantum. Remember, the Brackeens' adoption of Antonio is final, which makes it harder for them to prove that ICWA harmed them and that the law going away would fix that harm, two things they have to prove in order to have a case. But now they're fighting for custody of Yaslin. And what will happen there is uncertain. So the Brackeens jumping through all those hoops, inserting themselves in her case, strengthened their federal lawsuit. When the Fifth Circuit judges looked at that question, do the Brackeens have a case? They said yes, because of Yaslin. 
She wasn't even born when the Brackeens filed this federal lawsuit, but her custody case helped keep it going. To argue that ICWA is based on race, McGill focused a lot on a concept that is really loaded, blood quantum. There's nothing the Brackeens can do to join the Navajo Nation because they lack the requisite blood quantum. And that is what, and so our central submission here is that when a classification operates in state affairs to the direct disadvantage of non-Indians, as ICWA does, in that context, it's racial. Blood quantum was created by Congress a century ago with the stated goal of, quote, getting rid of the Indian problem. The idea being that once Native children were less than half or a quarter Native, they would no longer be Native. A century later, it's still around. The U.S. federal government assigns every enrolled Native person a fraction that measures how Native we all are. It's like the paperwork that comes with bred dogs. At first, blood quantum was forced on tribes. Today, some use it, some don't. It's up to that tribe. Just like what determines citizenship in France or Mexico is up to those countries. Most non-Native people don't know any of this. Probably couldn't even tell you what blood quantum is. But somehow, they're still obsessed with it. I can't tell you how many times a white person has asked me what part Cherokee I am. And that weird combination of ignorance and obsession was on full display at the Fifth Circuit. And it came mostly from the judges. This is Paul Spruan, Assistant Attorney General of Navajo Nation. Your Honors, the Navajo Nation, a treaty tribe, is here to defend the Indian Child Welfare Act as a statute that fulfills the federal government's treaty obligations to sovereign tribal nations. He's trying to explain why ICWA is based on political, not racial status. The Office of the Attorney General of Navajo Nation declined to speak with us directly. ICWA's definitions are plainly, purely political. They are directly connected to membership in a sovereign tribal nation with a government-to-government relationship with the United States. But the justices didn't want to talk about treaties or the rights of sovereign indigenous nations to determine their own citizenship. They wanted to talk about blood quantum. Again, Yaslin was referred to by her initials, YRJ. And there's one child in this case, I believe YRJ, that was <clears throat> made eligible by, uh, for the statute for, uh, eligible as an Indian child through eligibility for the Navajo Nation. Is that eligibility in this case determined purely by the child's blood? No, as we have suggested in our briefing, blood itself is insufficient. It is one element to be eligible to be part of the Navajo Nation and many other tribes. The eligibility of YRJ for the Navajo tribe, is it eligibility, is it determined by whether YRJ has a quarter quantum of Navajo blood? So to answer the question, uh, in all cases, blood in and of itself is not the exclusive element for YRJ or others. What's ironic about how blood quantum is used in these cases is that it cuts both ways. It's used when children have higher blood quantum to say ICWA is clearly race-based, but it's also used when children have lower blood quantum. Am I not correct that one of the children here had three 256 Indian blood? This is the chief judge of the Fifth Circuit, 
She's not sure what child or even what case she's talking about, but she remembers that specific fraction. You might remember it too, because it's from the baby girl case, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. That case ended in 2013. I asked Sharp what she thought about the judge's fixation on blood quantum. To even go to that place, to even think that they had a position of uh, moral or legal authority to second guess and question a tribe's ability to determine its own membership and its own citizenry was, was quite offensive and reflective of a misunderstanding of basic sovereignty. During oral arguments in the Fifth Circuit, McGill did something that shocked some people. He read Yaslin's enrollment number in Navajo Nation. That is the document by which the Navajo Nation said that she was enrolled as a member number of the uh, Navajo Nation. That number is unique to Yaslin. It's like a driver's license number or social security number. At the time, Yaslin was two. Sharp entered the court that morning, resolute and hopeful. But by the time it was all over, she was deflated. As I walked out of the courtroom, I felt, uh, I felt terrible. Because of a question Chief Judge Patricia Owens asked. This is purely hypothetical, not, not, uh, not pejorative. Uh, suppose Congress decided that uh, Native Americans were particularly subject to alcohol abuse and that when they were off the reservation, they got into an excessive number of DUI cases and they were treated excessively harshly. Uh, could Congress pass a law that, that enacted a new sentencing regime for, uh, uh, quote, Indians defined similar to this uh, who get into DUIs? The last line of questioning by one of the judges related to uh, drunk Indians. And the question that was at the heart of what that justice was after, I think, could have been asked in a way that was not as stereotypical of drunk Indians. Uh, to have that, those words be being spoken in a courtroom was truly offensive. But after... I left the courtroom, I really started to reflect on the fact that we have so much work to do in educating others, and there's still an, an incredibly large gap between a basic understanding of who we are as, as tribal people, as tribal nations, and those who are in a direct role of making decisions that directly affect our lives. The questions that they asked uh, were just at such a, a fundamental level of misunderstanding, it was shocking. That lack of understanding allowed the plaintiffs in this case to make some really radical arguments that went against centuries of law about the unique political status of tribes. Sharp remembers one argument in particular from Texas. He made a very uh, bold uh, declaration that we are... Uh, what did he say, sub-sovereigns? Here is what the former Solicitor General of Texas said. Side note, he now works at Gibson Dunn. It's giving a subordinate sovereign the power to write law that binds state judges in Texas. He has no idea that, you know, we've existed from 
when time began that we have this unique relationship with the United States, that we predated the United States, we predated the state of Texas, but yet we're somehow subservient and not on equal footing with any of these other sovereigns. It definitely is so much more than just the welfare of children. I think there's a a strategic and aggressive and intentional and a deliberate and a bold effort to undermine every bit of tribal sovereignty. Tribal sovereignty isn't something that the United States gave to tribes. We existed before the United States was even a country, before it was even an idea. And so our sovereignty, our right to self-determination over our land, our culture, and our people, it's inherent. Of course, centuries of colonization impacts how much of that sovereignty our tribes can exercise. But during those years of colonization, we fought back and protected important rights that Congress and the courts and even the Constitution recognize. And now people are saying that even those rights went too far and federal courts should take them away. There are big legal reasons why the battle over the Indian Child Welfare Act is about the future existence of tribes. But for Native leaders like Sharp, the well-being of Native children, of Quinault children, has always been about the future of her tribe. I think it's very important for us to understand and recognize where we are as tribal nations in, in the continuum of our effort to heal, restore, and recover from generations of of genocide. This is such a critical time. We've come such a long way in a relatively short time of repatriating our lands, our cultures, and we are just getting to a place where it's so important. And we're starting to see the results. We're starting to see another generation of Native citizens and children being born into societies where they can speak their language, where they know their songs, their dance. At a time when we are starting to make such tremendous strides, now more than ever, we need to protect and ensure every child that's born into our communities and our tribal nations has a fair shot at not only joining us and advancing our tribal nations, but being part of that healing process because we all have a role and a part in that. What the Fifth Circuit decided after the break. This land is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals or getting in the way of your happiness? Check out betterhelp.com slash this land. The past year and a half has been hard on all of us. And it's really helpful to talk to someone about it. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours, and you can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Plus, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide. They have licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, trauma, anger, family conflicts, and self-esteem. 
anything you share is confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash this land. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash this land. One Tuesday last April, more than a year after we were all in that courtroom together, my phone started blowing up. The decision was out. I downloaded it, read what I could, and the next day called up Matthew Fletcher. I was sitting in my living room watching my son play video games. We've heard from Matthew Fletcher before. He's a citizen of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians and law professor at Michigan State University. Oh, I just walked over and said, well, this is going to be bad. And I prepped myself for the inevitable shit show and I sat down and tried to download the 325 page opinion, which took a while. When you started to read the opinion, what was your immediate gut reaction? I was very deflated. My stomach sunk into the floor. My reaction was that this is everything that's wrong with the American legal system. And as I read, I realized that law doesn't matter to judges, that it's all politics. It's hard to explain the decision because there basically wasn't one. Remember when I said that the en banc was a panel of a bunch of judges? Well, that panel had an even number. What I did not expect was that they would split eight to eight on crucially important questions of um, Indian law, constitutional law. There were a few narrow parts of the law, basically sentences, where a majority agreed ICWA is unconstitutional. And then a few other parts of the law where a different majority agreed ICWA is constitutional. But for the most part, they couldn't make up their minds. Basically, I'm wavering back and forth between trying to think that this whole thing is a giant nothing burger. And I'm also trying to say, think that this is how close the end of Indian law is, that Eight out of 16 judges in the Fifth Circuit would throw the whole thing out the window in a heartbeat right now. The split decision seems like it would be a disappointment for both sides. But if your goal is getting this case to the Supreme Court, it's perfect because it's a complete mess. The image I had, and I don't know anything about sports, so I don't know why this came to my mind, but it's sort of like the guy who like holds the football before someone makes the field goal. I think that's right. More like taking the football and just as the person is coming to kick it, throwing it, hitting him in the face with it. It's scary because the Supreme Court is the next stage and there's a bunch of different things that can happen. It's scary because we don't know what those things are. What I strongly suspect will happen is that the Supreme Court will take this case and they'll take it in the broadest way possible. All issues are on the table. All of federal Indian law is on the table. All of the Indian Child Welfare Act is on the table. And they'll just say, let's hash it all out right now, once and for all. And they don't have to do that. That's not what the Supreme Court does. This is not the role of the judiciary. And the reason my my stomach sunk into the floor was because It's Indian law, and I know they're going to do the worst possible thing. 
At the end of the day, whether or not ICWA stands comes down to nine people. The future of tribal sovereignty, quite literally, is in their hands. Now, it's just math. The Supreme Court currently has six conservative justices and three liberal justices. One of the conservative justices has often sided with tribes. And one of the liberal justices voted against ICWA the last time it was in front of the court. Three of the justices are adoptive parents, including the chief justice. So what now? We're still waiting on word from the Supreme Court. And the stakes are really high. There are so many people and groups involved in this sprawling lawsuit, it's hard to keep track of. But at the end of the day, the people who will be most impacted by what happens next are Native families and Native children. Next time on this season's final episode of This Land. We were that generation yet to come when our ancestors prayed for us. They wanted us to know who we are. They knew many of us were going to be taken far away, and they prayed for us. So we're not, as adoptees, we're not looking to be pitied. We're not looking, we're not victims. We're your relatives who have been stolen, and we made our path back. This Land is reported, written, and hosted by me, Rebecca Nagel, Goheen Daudon Chalekayetlikela, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional reporting this season from Maddie Stone, Martha Troyan, citizen of Obi Shikakong, Laxul First Nation, and Amy Westervelt. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Katie Long. With special thanks to Allison Falzetta. From Critical Frequency, our managing producer is Amy Westervelt. Our senior producer is Sarah Ventry, and our story editor is Reka Murthy. Additional editing from Martha Troyan and Polly Danetkla, who is Danae. Sound design by Lyra Smith, Mark Bush, and Charlotte Landis. Original score composed by Jared Tate, citizen of Chickasaw Nation. Our outro song is an honor song for adoptees, written and sung by Jerry Dearly, who is Oglala Lakota. Our fact checker is Wu Dan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton, founder of the First Amendment Project. Podcast art by Kelly Gonzalez, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Jennifer Brackeen's blog was read by voice actor Alyssa Zia. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people find us. And please share it with your friends. If you have a tip or information to share related to our reporting, you can do that securely and anonymously through our secure drop. You can find a link in the show notes. To see a timeline of YRJ's case and the documents we dug up, visit the show's website. This season of This Land touches on different forms of family, childhood, and racial trauma. 
If you feel like you could use support, please check our show notes or website, thislandpodcast.com, to find resources for adoptees and survivors of childhood trauma, abuse, foster care, and boarding schools. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.